Okay, take your Bibles again and turn to 1 Peter. As we continue to study through this book, this great epistle in the New Testament, we have been learning a lot about submission and what that means and how important it is to the Lord that we be those kind of people. And as you're turning there, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning, as we approach the word of God, Lord, let us do that with deep reverence of heart, humility of mind. So, Lord, we would take your word as serious as you do, and that we would realize that these are not just suggestions, these are God's will. So I pray, Lord, that we would take what's written and practice it in our life because these are practical things. These are things that the Spirit of God enables us and empowers us to do. So I pray, Lord, that we would be these kind of people that is mentioned in these texts. Lord, rebuke us if you need be. Change our minds on Issues in, in relationships and help us, Lord, every day by the power of your spirit to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the old ways of the flesh. And I pray that you would do that for us, for we know it is your will. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking this morning at verse number 8 through 13. And just to bring you up to speed, uh, we as the children of God living in this world must learn submission. And I've been saying that the word submit implies putting oneself under the authority of another, and of course that's willingly, and to take or to take in a, a subordinate place, of course that is something you do willingly. And, of course, adding to that definition was this definition, uh, voluntary selfishness, submission which is based on the death of pride or the death of self and the desire to serve. So, so far, we we, we actually saw four applications of this submission, Christian submission. The first application was to governing authorities, In any form of government, a person would find themselves, they are to submit to those authorities. And remember, all submission has a caveat to it, and the caveat is always this. If someone's asking you to sin or go against what God says, that's where we disobey. So that's always the caveat. The second application was found where the responsible behavior of a believer is a servant to their masters, or remember, workers to their bosses. And then in the middle of that, we saw an application, we saw the application of the Lord Jesus Christ submitting to the Father's will. Of course, Jesus becomes our example in submission, where he submitted himself to suffering and even death on the cross. The third application of a Christian's responsible behavior is the Christian wife's responsibility to their unsaved husbands, and yes, to all husbands, 
in the area of submission. And then the fourth application, which we looked at last time, was a Christian's responsible behavior is the Christian's, the Christian husband's submission to God on behalf of their wives. So a husband submits to God uh, in what he should be doing as a husband, and then he does it in behalf of his wife. So we move now in our text from the specifics of Christian duty to now the general statements of Christian behavior, which include the attitudes and the characteristics for appropriate Christian submission in any place at any time. And so we see the first thing in our text that in verse number 8 and verse 9 that the appropriate attitudes are going to come under this, that a Christian submission is to be seen in our submissive conduct. And, of course, that conduct is, is going to be seen in two areas, conduct before other believers and then conduct before everybody else. So what kind of conduct should we have? What kind of attitude should we have as believers, that, an attitude that pleases God? And remember, these attitudes always la- also lay ground for us to be able to give an answer to the hope that lies within us to be able to share the gospel with somebody by the way we live. So we see that the conduct this morning, first of all, is our conduct toward believer. Look at verse number 8 in chapter 3. It says, To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now, if you noticed in that section in that particular passage, here are some desirable attributes in which he is summing up the subject of submission that all Christians are to have as their goal for living every single day, that the Apostle Peter uses five adjectives to describe the Christian's attitude of two areas, actually, mind and then affections, our mind and then our affections that the scripture is going to affect how we feel. So these words describe how the gospel of Jesus Christ and a regular exposure to the word of God actually transforms the mind and the affections. You got that? That God, when he transforms us, he's transforming our mind and our Affections, what we love, what we desire. Some 51 years ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones warned at a Puritan conference not to repeat an error of a movement called Sandemanianism. Of course, that movement was only named after a man named Robert Sandeman, and, but he was a Scottish theologian whose central error was this, namely that truth, that true faith, he said, can be held without deeply felt affections. That was the error. Lloyd-Jones was warning against that. In other words, Christian faith 
and theological reflection are not only concerned with the mind, because our mind is being transformed by truth, but it's it's concerned also with faith and right theology, but it entails more than knowledge. Faith and reflection on truth must include a love for and a joy in the truth, and yes, with sound truth that grips the heart and reorients our affections to the glory of God or for the glory of God. So this next section of Scripture, we can see how real conversion to Christ reorients one's inner man. That, In other words, how we look at life is completely changed as we are exposed more and more to Scripture and as the Spirit of God is moving us and to a place where we are exemplifying pleasing attitudes and characteristics in our life because we serve God and we serve God under his watchful eye. So there's five characteristics in our text that should accompany a growing attitude of submission. And here's the first one in verse number 8. I'm going to go through them. In verse number 8, the first one would be this, that we are to be, now look what it says there, companionable. All right? Now that has to do with the mind. It says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. There's the word there, harmonious, and that is to be people of one mind, people of unity. It's really an inward unity of attitude in spiritual things which really makes any kind of schism unthinkable. You don't want to have any kind of schisms going on in your life or in the church. So, in other words, that there's other passages of Scripture that remind us of this. Philippians, for example, chapter 2, verse 2, it says... Make my joy complete by being of the, what? Same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, Romans chapter 12 says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And we can look at other passages, but the point being there, stressing this, that we are to be people who are harmonious, who are united in thought, united in our understanding of truth. Strife and divisions are fleshly things which show a person is living on purely a human level according to human standards without the mind of Christ. Like it says in Corinthians 3.3, where Paul says to the Corinthians church, for you are still fleshly. You're still carnal. And why were they carnal? He says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not still in the flesh? You're not walking in the spirit. It says you're walking as mere men. You're walking the way you used to walk, in the old manner of life. No, there's got to be a change. So no person can live the Christian life unless in his personal relationships or hers, he or she is at unity with their fellow men and women. 
And in, in a very real way, the church cannot be truly Christian in their attitudes and, and actions if there is division within it, right? That there's a, a great stress in Scripture not to have division. Now, I've already said that the function of our willing submission to God's structure of things is to keep the unity so that the work of God will not be hindered. And don't forget, unity is enhanced through submission. I already said submission to, the, to God through his word, submission to God through his will, and of course submission to God through his authority. And however, I said unity does not mean uniformity. It means cooperation in the midst of diversity. That's what's so different about the church. We can have all kinds of people come to the church from all different backgrounds and cultures and languages and still be one. See, the world's trying to do that, but they can't do it. Why can't they do it? There's no Christ. There's no salvation. There's no spirit. There's no word. All right? They can't do it. No matter what they do, they'll never be able to accomplish that. We come to the church, and all of a sudden, God gives it to us. But we have to keep it because we can revert back to fleshly ways of doing things, which does not help anybody, and it does not help the church. So we don't have to agree on how everything is to be done, but we are to agree on what and why things are to be done. We are to agree on that, and how do we get that agreement? By the Word of God. By the Word of God. So that leads me, that's the mind. Our mind is changed to, to be a mind of unity, Right? That leads us to the second one in our text, in verse number 8, and that is to be sympathetic. We are to be, I'm saying, compassionate people. We are to be compassionate people. Boy, I spelled that wrong, didn't I? No, did I? All right, that's what I'm saying. All right, but in other words, it, now he's talking about our affections. So he, went, he goes from the mind of unity to affections, right? And what, what is compassion. What is it to be sympathetic? It means to share the feeling, your feelings of someone else, to be ready at any time to enter into someone's feelings, whether those feelings are sorrow or whether they're joy. And you and I bounce back and forth out of those feelings all the time, right? But sometimes we have sorrow in our life. So compassion is coming along somebody in their sorrow and feeling what they feel, understanding what they understand. It's like it says in Hebrews 10, it says the people are to show sympathy for the prisoner. In other words, the point was being that in, in, in Hebrews, it says remember the prisoners as, those, as though you were in prison with them. Getting in, into your mind, if I was in prison, how would I feel? What would I be thinking about? What, were, what would be the heaviness of my heart? And so that's what this word means. It means to be able to be affected with the same feelings as someone else. And yet you are not going through that literally at the time they are, but you learn how to feel with them so you can come alongside of them and genuinely help them. So in this word, there is the sense in which the affections are inwardly moved. The inside of my heart are moved to want to do something. Jesus, of course, is our example 
of deep compassion when Jesus called his disciples together in Mark chapter 8. And the crowd came around them, and the people were listening to his teaching, and three days had gone by, and they really haven't had anything to eat. And so Jesus, his compassion becomes proactive, which he moves towards solving to, uh, to satisfy the hunger of the people in Mark 8. So compassion always has feelings connected to it, feelings that are kindled when one sees the desperate need in another person and ex- then experiences within themselves the sense of sorrow or the sense of joy. So mercy actually kicks in, uh, and then, of course, it puts into practice a plan to do something to relieve the need and to remove the suffering. This term compassion metaphorically means being moved deeply within a gut-wrenching emotion. Jesus says in, in Matthew nine thirty six, seeing the people, he felt compassion on them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. See, that's what compassion is. It's able to get in and feel what another person is feeling. And you know what? It's very comforting when somebody comes along you when you're feeling that way and they genuinely are connecting with you to help you, to pray with you, to just encourage you, just to be there with you at that moment of possibly uh, being down or being in distress. Or if you're joyful, come alongside of you and, and encourage you in your joy and when somebody is having a good day. So, so we in our day are bombarded with so much misinformation and bad news we have become unfeeling and numb. Uh, these video games some of these kids watch, all that they do is numb their soul and they numb their feelings. You know, some of these shootings that are happening and you know are very grievous to think about and to experience, but a lot of this behind it has a lot of stuff going on before that child or that kid gets a gun and starts shooting somebody. Uh, I like to know all the stuff that's behind it, right, before they get to that point. They become numb, all right? Shooting someone as a human being is like, oh, it's just like a video game, you know? And they find out, no, it's not. They, then they realize what reality is. But it's a sad that we have gotten there. Uh, see, freedom is really not free when you uh, overstep the boundaries of freedom and actually abuse people by giving, you know, allowing kids to have games and and people to have information that really is not helpful or healthy for them to have. So the bottom line is that increased growth in Christian maturity is revealed by a heartfelt compassion toward people who have spiritual, physical, and emotional needs. Now that leads me to a third one, and that is in our text, uh, that's the passage of Scripture where the Lord had compassion, but is, it's, we are to be considerate. Again, it's the affections. Now, the word used in our text is brotherly. Well, the Greek word is, is Philadelphia. So we know that by looking at that word, he means brotherly love. All right, So we are 
children of the Heavenly Father and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. In the first chapter of 1 Peter, he already taught that Christians are to live a life committed to growing in love, where he says in chapter 1, verse 22, fervently love one another from the heart. See, the motive and ability to obey that command to love flows from the new birth and the new life that it opens up. The divine seed being planted in the heart produces divine love. So in God's book, we find life, and through it then, let us express the love that the Lord has expressed to us in the cross of Calvary. So we ought to be getting out about the business of growing up in love. And of course, there's many passages we can go to, but I'm thinking about one where it says in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Right? In other words, we express the love of God to people that can be seen. And of course, God sees how we do that. And so the fourth characteristic is that of being comforting. A different word in in the text, it's kind-hearted. Again, our affections are being influenced by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And this term kind-hearted is derived from a word, a Greek word that actually means intestines, right? Now, we don't necessarily talk that way, but the point is it's the deep-seated emotions that are in your soul that were to be kind-hearted from the inside out, being sensitive toward the needs of others even when they deserve the contrary. And that's, that's the the whole different thing, that we're to have actually this kind of comforting or tenderheartedness towards someone who doesn't necessarily deserve it. So being sensitive this way, we find it in scriptures like this in, in, uh, and courteous that goes with it, uh, that to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So, so these two things, being somebody who is comforting and someone who is courteous, and courteous actually lends us more to the mind again. So we went from the mind to the affections to the affections to the affections, now back to the mind, because the last one, the fifth one, would, would be to be humble in spirit, all right, or to be courteous. This is an attitude of the mind the opposite of being haughty or high-minded. Here is a self-effacing person that is one who has evaluated himself or herself and has emptied himself or herself so that they do not brag or push themselves on other people, but they are courteous with people, and they're very sensitive to that. So let's not forget that the Apostle Peter was writing to prepare Christians to live in light of difficulties, to live in light of even fiery trials, 
So they are, and we are, to maintain a Christian demeanor even in the face of those who are against us. So then he switches from the attitudes we should have towards believers to now the attitudes and the characteristics that we are to have towards everyone else. And what's the first thing? In verse number 9 of 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, but, well, in there it says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. That's the first thing, that we are not, the first one is not to rely uh, or retaliate with carnal, with any kind of carnal or fleshly, uh, fleshly response. So this, this first response should not have, that is, an unre- this should not be an unreasonable response or undesirable. This is the, the undesirable response a Christian should have is returning evil for evil or insult for insult. So this response is really as old as time, the tit for the tat type of thing. It's the, you do evil to me, well, I'll do it right back to you. You insult me and mine, and well, I'll retaliate it with some crafty verbal response, right? That's the old way. No, we must not respond according to the dictates of the old sinful mind. But So that's the first thing we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't re- retaliate with a carnal response. And again, this goes back to the example Christ had when he did not open his mouth. Right? He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. That's what the Lord did. So then, if we're not to respond this way... I'm, I'm really thankful that the Word of God doesn't leave us there because it, take, it says, okay, don't respond this way, but this is the way you should respond. Now, how should we respond? Well, if you look at verse number 9, it tells us, all right? It says that we are not, we are to, not to return evil for evil or insult for Ill, insult, but it says, but we are instead to respond, it says, but giving a blessing instead. So that's what, that's what we're to do. We're to give a blessing. All right, now, what is a blessing? Well, responding with a blessing means to call down good on someone. And in this case, it means also to call down good upon them, even for those who are against you, who revile you. See, so Christ, again, is our example. The followers of Jesus are called to imitate the Lord Jesus' example of non-retaliation in response to verbal abuse and with, of course, a col- uh, with, with awaiting or looking for also a blessing that awaits when you do not. Now, just for, for example, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5 just for a, a, a few seconds, and let me read that, verse 43 to 48, because really this has all that in that passage of Scripture, and the Lord teaching there in Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48, gives us a sense of what it means to respond with a blessing. It says in verse number 43 of chapter 5 of Matthew, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For, it, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Lord moving us to the place where this is what it means to be a blessing to someone, to do the opposite of what you normally would have done in the flesh, according to the old man. And believe me, those things cannot easily be done in the flesh because everybody's living at either one to three levels. Either... We're returning evil for evil, that's the satanic level. Or we're returning good for good, that's the human level. But when we return good for evil, that's the divine level. And so the level we want to live on is the divine level. So we, are, we Christians are actually called to be a blessing. Now, if you look back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, that's exactly what it says there. It says that we are actually called to be a blessing. It says, for you were called, verse number nine in the middle, for you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Now, we are called to bless because we ourselves have been blessed by God, have we not? We don't want to lose a blessing by not being merciful to others. We Christians have already received mercy from God by Christ paying for the huge debt of our sin. That's what he did for us. So we have received his mercy, and because we have received his mercy, we have received the blessing from him. And because we have received that blessing from him, we want to now turn around and bless other people by being good to them, by supplying their needs, by praying for them. So then, see, Christians are called to be a blessing, to love one another, to even love our enemies, and then we're also called to do something else. We're actually called to love life. Let me ask you something. Do you love life? This one kind of took me a little bit. I wasn't expecting this one. So the second of the appropriate attitudes and characteristics of submission is that Christian submission is to be seen in our noble desire and heard in our sanctified conversation. Well, what is our noble, noble desire? I want you to look at verse number 10, what it says. It says, for the one who desires life to love and to see good days. You see that there? Sometimes these, these passages of Scripture can slip by us and that we don't necessarily get the sense of, of what is being said there. To love life with, with knowledge, right? That's what we're doing. We're, we're to love life with knowledge of what we have already received, that life 
and good days are experienced with the new birth. As part of the the present living hope of all believers, we have received something from God. And in receiving this from God, salvation from God through Christ, then we have a different perspective on, on life now. Actually, living in the footsteps of Jesus is worthwhile and better than we ever had before. So if you want a life here on earth that is worthwhile, a life you can love and with full intelligence and purpose to see days that are not empty, but days that are rich of the fruit of the Lord. And I'm not talking about easy days or sunshine days but days in which one experiences the blessing of God in the middle of a difficult life. That's what he's saying here. Living life as an alien and a sojourner will not be easy. We already see that in this scripture. In fact, he's going to highlight that more in chapter, the end of the chapter 3 and 4. But while we're going through it, God is with us for good and for blessing, right? That's what the scriptures teach us. So in that sense, we are to love life as believers. Do you love your life? Do you love the life that God gave you? See, that's, that, that's got to be the question. Now, at this point in our text, you know what he does? You know what Peter does? He actually expounds or brings in Psalm 34. And I looked at the psalm, and the psalm is very important because he actually quotes directly from it in verses 10, 11, and 12. And I want you to just look at it in our text there. It says in verse 10, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this is the text he brings in to actually come and support his first statement there, the one who desires life to love and see good days. I think that all of us want good days, don't we? All of us want to love life. That, I think that's all part of it. And you know what? And maybe loving life, the Christian life that God's given us in this world, that should be part of how we respond in submission to God. Because you know what? We may not be able to change our circumstances or our life, but we can respond to our life and our circumstances in a way that pleases God. And when we do that, we actually receive blessings that come from God. And so in our text, in Psalm 34, in verse number 12, it says this, because he poses it in Psalm as a question. See, this is the question that David has, right? And here's the question. Who is a man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? 
So who is the man who does this, the person who does this? And then we also know that this is connected to another passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel. In Psalm chapter 34, in verse number 1, if we go to the head of the context of chapter 34, this is what David says. A Psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech and drove him away and he departed, I will bless the Lord at all times. He pray, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, Abimelech is, a, is a, another title for the king of Akesh, of Gath. All right? Now, follow me on this because this is where he goes in the text. Now, let me just give you some background, then I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Here's the background of these texts. David was a refugee and was on the run from King Saul, who wanted him actually dead, tried to kill him several times. So David sought political asylum in a place called Gath. However, that was not really a good move. And this is the reason why, because Gath is where the giant Goliath was from. David had already slain Goliath, right? Now, you don't kill a countryman's champion and try to slip through the cracks without being noticed. So David realized he made a big mistake by seeking refuge among Israel's worst enemy. And on top of all that, he had Goliath's sword with him. This is not good. This is not a good day. See, the point is, this is not a good day for David. You understand? This is, matter of fact, this may be one of the worst days he ever had. He had no home. He was a king without a kingdom because Saul was still the king. He was a soldier without an army. He had no place to go, and so he figured, well, maybe at Gath, they'll give me a chance, right? But he realized when he got there, no, this is not going to work. That's what happens. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we'll read verse 10 to 13, and then 14 and 15. This is the context. This is where it comes from. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to King, to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, is this is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Verse 12, David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Verse 13, so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Now, just think of that for a moment. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get out of a situation, right? The best way he knows how. And it's, it's probably the best thing he can do. And this is King David now. So don't ever say that King David never had a bad day. This is a bad day, right? So can he actually think in his mind that he loved life at this point. But this is where he writes the psalm. 
Now, look at verse, right there, verse 14 and 15 of 1 Samuel 21. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? Boy, we can say that today, can't we? That you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence. Shall this one come into my house? And then look at the verse, the chapter one, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. So David departed there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house, uh, household heard of it, they went down there to him. So at that point, David writes this psalm. And he says in this psalm, and his question was, listen, the question is, what does it take? Who is the, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Who is that kind of man? So he answers his own question in Psalm 34 in verse number 13. And this is what he says. He says in Psalm 34, in verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now, he just came out of a situation where he was babbling. Who knows what David was saying? He probably said the wrong things, and he comes back and he realizes how absurd it was that he acted like that. See, when you desire to love the life that God has given you, with a positive and realistic outlook, then you must actually continue to practice difficult things. Matter of fact, a difficult operation you need to practice. And what does it say back in First Peter? In our text, why don't you turn back there and notice what he says in verse number 10. And he, again, remember, quoting from Psalm 34, but not posing it as a question, posing it as a statement. In verse 10, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must do something. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So here's the difficult operation. Now, do you think this morning that it is difficult to control your tongue? Do you think that's difficult to do? Do people tend to control their tongue? No, they don't, right? They don't. In fact, if you notice, it says there that we are to keep the tongue from evil and the lips from speaking deceit. This is kind of a poetic way of saying, listen, the evil starts in your heart. It, by you thinking about it, it works up to your mouth. And it then slips out this little opening called your lips, between your lips, and it gets out to people. That, that's how he's presenting it. But let's just consider for a moment. Psalm 141, verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, on my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And, of course, this passage of Scripture right here, where it says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's the Psalm 34 passage. But look at this one in James. It says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Now I'm reading the verses ahead. That's verse 8. In verse 8 it says, No one can tame the tongue. It is 
a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Have you ever considered your tongue to be that? This is, God, this is how God views. The problems that we have usually come from our speech, but it also comes, of course, from our heart. Verse number 9, with, with the tongue, what do we do? We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So again, that's what David is saying. Listen, if you want to love life, if you desire to love the life that God's given you, then there must be a control of what you're thinking about and what comes out of your mouth, a heart that is free from any base and deceitful thing is able then to control the tongue and its speech. And how are they able to do that? How are you and I able to control our tongue? By walking in the spirit and not walking in the old man's ways, right? So, see, in other words, anything that comes out of our tongue, uh, out of our mouth, has to be evaluated as to whether I should say this or not. And you should quickly be able to evaluate what you're going to say, and if it doesn't have any kind of value to it, to edify someone, encourage someone, or even when you rebuke someone to do it in the right way, then don't do it. All right, to have that kind of control over it. And he's saying when you do, you will experience the good parts of life. Why, why do you think that is? You know, why we're, you know where wars start from? Wars start right from our heart, right? And then they wars start by speech. And speech that is sometimes not understood and confusing. And wars start like that. And so when we, ex- when we learn how to control our tongue, we actually learn how to experience to the goodness and blessing of life. And then a next thing that we see in our text in verse number 11 is this, that the third thing is that the Christian submission is to be lived out with a saintly pursuit. That means this, we're first of all to walk on the right path. David, let me, before I, I look at that, David continues to answer the question of a blessed life. And he says, secondly, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Peter says in our text, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So you, you can't just turn from evil it must be replaced by a pursuit of that which is good and that which seeks peace. If you are to love life, you must avoid evil. And you avoid evil because you despise evil. A Christian should not avoid sin just because it's wrong. They should avoid sin because they hate it. They should avoid sin because what it did to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when you learn to hate 
what God hates, what usually happens? When you hate something, you stay away from it. You don't do it. And it tells us here in our text to pursue peace. Of course, never peace at all costs. Peace is not simply freedom from trouble. Here in our text, it means to hunt for peace in order to capture it. Now, there's several kind of peace that we can consider. One could be peace first Godward. The peace, this peace is that which was already won for us through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through what? Through the blood of the cross. This peace is given to us by God. So because we are at peace with God through Christ, we are now able to make every effort to maintain peace with other people, with other human beings. For it says in Romans fourteen nineteen. so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. A second way of considering peace is toward man, manward. Peace in relationships. See, this peace will not come automatically because people just because people are Christians, because the world is still part of our thinking and the flesh, remaining flesh is still there and the devil will, will try to disrupt life in any group of believers and in our life. That is why this peace requires an effort. It says to pursue it, to pursue something. Peace is good for the soul and well-being of God's people. And if anybody's going to learn peace, it must be learned by God's people. So we're to walk on the right path, and that right path is to turn away from evil and to seek peace and pursue it. And then, secondly, we are to live with the right perspective. In verse number 12, notice this. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and the ears attend to their prayer. Again, Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. In other words, divine favor, it's what it's talking about there, that when we live this way, we have divine favor that comes toward us. That means God is with us for good, for blessing. But then, if you don't live that way, if you desire, if you just continue to live the way of the flesh, then notice in verse number 12 what it says, again, the middle of the verse, there's actually divine disfavor and retribution. It says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 34 says it like this, the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So the incentive for doing good is the knowledge of the actual presence of God. The Lord's eyes, in verse number 12, see. And the Lord's ears 
here. So those who live for the Lord are motivated by a real consciousness of God's character and actions and his very presence in their life. In other words, there's no one more blessed than the Lord. There's no one more on the side of a believer than the Lord. And so, therefore, we are to live with that perspective that God sees, that he hears, that he's involved with my life. He is not far away and distant. He's involved in the details of my life and your life. And so, therefore, that brings us to the last thing, and it's this, that it's where it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. God is listening to their prayers and he's answering their prayers according to his will. And the last thing would be this, to live with the right policy. And what is that? Verse number 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you? If you are living your life for the Lord, if you are loving the life that God has given you, if you are fleeing and turning away from evil, if you are controlling your tongue, if you are at desire to pursue peace and be at peace with other people, who can be against you if God's for you? No one. So a good day for a believer who loves life is not one which is catered to, but one in which he or she experiences God's help and his comfort and his support and his blessing in the middle of life's problems and trials. So, how did David end his psalm when he wrote on the day that his life was filled with trouble? How did he end it? Well, he ended it like this. He said this, the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So on that particular day, on a bad day, David experienced some things that he didn't know before, and he experienced the very comfort and support and blessing in the middle of life's trials. Now, if you remember the text that I read in 1 Samuel, the first verse of chapter 22, this is what happened. It says, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. So what is now David getting? On that bad day, he's getting all the comfort from his family from those who support him, from those who are with him, from his soldiers that fought with him. They're all coming. You know what they're going to come down there to do with him? They're going to come down there, and they're going to convince him he needs to go back and become king and be declared to be the king, and that's what happens. So see, on a very bad day, he experienced God's presence, and it caused him to write a very encouraging psalm to know that I am blessed because God is with me. And God knows all that's going on in my life, and I am so thankful for that. So in other words, the good life, 
is a life in which God is near to you for blessing. When you experience God's help and his support, his blessing in the middle of life's problems and trials. So the Christian life is never a deliverance from problems and trials, never. What it is, it's a realization that in the midst of those trials and problems, God is with you. And if God is with you, don't have to worry about anything. Nobody can be against you, no one. Do you see how that must change our minds? That must change the way we do things. That must change our submission to the very general characteristics and that are appropriate to live every day of our lives. And when we do that, we are actually, God is actually pleased with us. And we know, for Satan, he's going to lie to you saying that God's not with you. Look at you. Look at who you are. Look at your miserable thing. And no, the scripture says, no, God's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you, right? God works everything for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what the scriptures say. So our minds ought to be thinking that way. And I believe that when we do, we gain encouragement and strength in the time of suffering and, of course, trials and trouble in our life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. It again, Lord, illuminates the darkness of the world, sometimes the confusion of our hearts on what is right and what is wrong, and it actually gives us the needed practical information on how to live in this world in a way that we can carry out the characteristics of submission before you, and as we do that, you are near us for blessing and good. And Lord, you walk with us, and you defend us, and you protect us, and you help us, and you hear our prayers, and you answer us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here that realizes they're not living that way, I pray that would be something they need to change and come before you in repentance and sin. And if, Lord, if someone never experiences that, I pray it may be that they don't even know you as their Lord and Savior, and they need to come and repent of their sin and trust you as their Lord and Savior. Please, Lord, work your word in our heart that it may be effectual and it may pr produce the results you intend. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you.